Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for future information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Professor Emeritus Jim Data. Jim was the former director of the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Every student, of course, of Futures and Foresight knows him for things like Data's Law, the Tsunamis of Change and Scenario Archetypes. But that's just a few of Jim's extensive uh, contributions to the field. Jim also taught at Rico University in Tokyo for six years and also at the University of Maryland, Virginia Tech, the University of Toronto and the Inter-University Consortium for Postgraduate Studies in Dubrovnik, Yugoslavia. Jim is a former president of the World Future Studies Federation, is the editor-in-chief of the World Futures Review and is the author of many significant futures publications. Jim, welcome to FuturePod. Thank you. So, Jim, question one we start our guest with is really for you just to tell the story of how you found yourself a member of the Futures and Foresight community. Okay, well, it's I've been at it a long time, and so I need to go back um, to what I think are more or less is more or less the beginning, um, and say that as a um, young young person. Um, I can never remember a time when I wasn't interested in the future uh, yeah. for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is um, my name, Dater, um, is a rather uh, <laughs> unusual name. Very few people name that around the world. And in fact, uh, it, uh, I don't know anything about my background, uh, my father's ethnicity. The name itself says nothing about my ethnicity. Um, I did not, uh, my father drowned shortly after I was born and I was raised primarily by my mother's uh, mother and father in uh, central Florida, far from uh, New York uh, state where I was born while my mother was a uh, student at the Eastman uh, Rochester School of Music. And I was, uh, it turned out that the other males in my family, my not only my father, but my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and my uncle all died in, uh, in the 1940s when I was uh, young. And I was raised by three women, my mother, but my mother was a university professor, and I really didn't get to see her very much yeah. uh, because she spent a great deal of time with her own students and so forth. Uh, by my aunt, who uh, was her sister, and was in many ways my father figure, yeah. because she sort of taught me how to do whatever manly things needed to be done around <laughs> the house, or automobile repair, or things like that. Uh, and especially my grandmother, their mother, who suffered herself the losses of all the men in the family, uh, and uh, coming just after the a Great Depression of the 1930s, immediately into a war, the sudden loss of income and of male uh, influence and support 
was traumatic for her as well. So uh, I was basically reared in an environment in which I had no past. I did not know anything about my family's background, my father's background, as I say, the ethnicity that we came from. Um, and I learned, I also never learned really how to be a very good man or how to distinguish being a man from a woman in terms of expectations and obligations and making a household uh, operate. There were things to be done. It didn't matter what your gender was or what your age was. And so really from the very beginning, I was future oriented. Um, as I like to say over time, I felt that I'm not a human being, I'm a human becoming. Yep. And I'm more interested in where, what lies ahead and what uh, I, I, how my life might unfold and how the world around me might be than where I came from or what the traditions of my family or my ethnicity were. I mean, that's interesting, Jim, because you actually, you, you actually are almost like a prototype of, of a lot of children now that are being raised in families where men are not present. I, and, and to me, that's one of the most wonderful things that happened to me, not having a father, not having a bunch of men to tell me what to do. And unfortunately, at the present time, because we have these myths about families and myths about the role of fathers and mothers and so forth, being in the condition that many children are now, but relatively rare in my time, is viewed as a tragedy rather than as an opportunity. Yeah. And I think you always have to view whatever environment you're in as an opportunity. There is no uh, best case future. There is no worst case future. You just make the best of whatever environment you are in. So in any event, that's part of it. But let me tell you a little more about the intellectual aspect of my interest in the future. Through high school and especially in college and in graduate school, I was always interested in philosophers, historiographers, people that sort of described the big picture of what life was like. Um, I grew up at a time when intellectual, ethical religion was very important. I was a, uh, my family were high church Episcopalians at a time when really extremely intellectual and ethically oriented religious discussion was quite common within the Episcopal Church and in the Church of England at that time. And I had the extremely good fortune uh, having ministers, priests, who were themselves crowning intellects, uh, whose sermons were, even as a child, captivating to me, both of them in my small town of DeLand, Florida, where I spent most of my time, taught in the philosophy departments of the um, university where my mother taught and where I eventually attended Stetson University. And so they encouraged me to think about ethical and um, intellectual as well as religious and spiritual matters at an early age and to be interested in what St. Augustine had to say, what St. Thomas had to say, what the uh, Greek philosophers had to say, uh, what thinkers like Toynbee or um, uh, Marx or others who looked at the big picture and thought they understood the mechanisms of uh, change, social change. Yeah. And so with that sort of a intellectual and spiritual background as a youth, 
going into university. I also was in university at the time, after the Second World War, when the emphasis of the world as a whole was towards something called development. Uh, This was the origin of the time when people believed that uh, economists especially, that societies went through stages of economic growth and that the United States had done this, England had done this, Germany had done this, and then countries like Germany, uh, like Japan, also went through stages of economic growth. And so that notion fed right directly into the spiritual, religious, philosophical ideas had, I'd had earlier. And so when I graduated with a PhD or in the process of doing so, looking around for a place where I could start my academic career, I happened to encounter a group of people from a Japanese university, Rikyo Daigaku in Tokyo, uh, who were looking for a new uh, political scientist who could teach the then modern cutting edge ideas of political science in a well-established private university uh, in Japan that had created a new college of law and politics. And so they sent me to Yale to learn Japanese language, uh, which is uh, by a process that involved entirely listening and speaking, not reading and writing. Uh, So that when I stepped off the airplane, in Tokyo, I was able to speak Japanese fairly well with a limited vocabulary, but I wasn't able to read or write at all. Um, And I spent uh, the first of three or so years of my six years there as a child, simply talking and listening, uh, learning how to read and write a little bit. And the last three uh, engaged in research into trying to understand why Japan of all of the non-Western parts of the world at that time, was so modern, was so uh, heavily industrialized. Why in a really a decade it had moved, transformed from being a a medieval country, uh, totally isolated from the rest of the world, to a global country. And I became therefore especially interested in this process of uh, development, if you will, uh, using Japan as a uh, an example. However, and this is the real point of my long story here, there happened to be a, a person in Japan at that time uh, who had uh, been a correspondent for the Associated Press in Japan during the war, was an old Asia hand, if you will, had retired to Japan. He asked me to read a manuscript that he had written about Japan. And it was a manuscript that used the ideas of Oswald Spengler, a German uh, philosopher of history, uh, who described the the West as having gone through a series of stages uh, that sort of imitate growth of the human body from birth to infancy to adolescence, maturity, uh, older age, and eventual decline and death uh, to describe what had happened in the West. John Randolph was his name, and Randolph took Spengler's theory and applied it to Japan. 
And he had written a paper that he asked me to review that showed that uh, Japan had gone through the stages of growth and development similar to those of the West in the same order that they had gone, uh, that the West had experienced them. Each of the periods roughly about the same length in terms of years between the West and Japan, and that in every instance, Japan was roughly 200 years ahead of the West. Right. And that's what knocked my socks off. <laughs> I, there was, it was impossible for me to believe in the 1960s that yeah. any country was ahead of the United States mm-hmm. or that any civilization was ahead of uh, the West. And yet here was evidence uh, suggesting that that was the case for Japan. Now, I don't want to argue that one way or another. I think he's probably wrong, but it nonetheless made me say, wait, what's the future of the United States? Developed nations, Mark said, see their future, uh, developing nations see their future in the presence of developed nations. Could I see my future, the future of the United States and of the West generally in the presence of Japan that I was experiencing? Mm. And so that is what really was the single thing that turned me into a futurist. And from that moment on, uh, about 1964 or five, um, I was uh, in my academic work and in all aspects of my life, uh, futures oriented. When a few years later I left Japan, I had already begun introducing concepts about the future into my classes, but went to Virginia Tech, which was a primarily a technically oriented uh, military school that had become, decided to become a full-fledged state university and was doing very interesting things in general and especially in political science. And they encouraged me to teach courses in future studies through the Department of Political Science. And so it is said that I am the first person to ever teach an officially recognized uh, course in future studies uh, as I began to do so in uh, 1968 and 69. So that's where the idea of teaching future studies came from, uh, that sort of a background. I came to Virginia Tech after six years in Tokyo, almost completely isolated from any of the intellectual developments in the United States during those six years, where somebody told me, after listening to my ideas about the future, you sound like Buckminster Fuller and Marshall (laughs) McLuhan. And I had absolutely no idea who those people were. But I soon found out, and I also discovered that nearby in Washington, D.C., something called the World Futures Study, uh, World Futures Society, was being created, the World Futures Society, which I joined. And because I was developing a bibliography uh, on future studies for my classes, I decided to publish that bibliography in an edition of the Bulletin of the World Future Society. And some people in Europe who were interested in future studies from a academic um, bibliographic point of view discovered that 
and invited me to come to Rome to participate in a workshop on uh, really where in a library should books dealing with the future stand. <laughs> that was really what they were interested in. But that got me into the European movement in future studies that was occurring at the same time. And eventually that led to the creation of the World Future Studies Federation, which is has a very similar name, but is in contrast to uh, the World Future Society in Washington. Jim, can I butt in there just because I'd like you to explain, because I'm not sure listeners, because people, people now would be familiar with the World Future Society and maybe some would be aware of the Federation, but can you let people know in that 60s and 70s, how large those organizations were compared to where they are now? Well, um, the, the World Future Society and the World Future Studies Federation, in spite of their similar names, um, were really quite different in origin and in understanding of the future. First of all, the, uh, they were roughly created at the same time. As a formal organization, the World Future Society was created as a business by um, a Ed Cornish, a, a, a journalist and a publisher of the journal The Futurist, and eventually some other things. His idea was to hold conferences uh, on the future every year or so from the mid-1960s, uh, uh, late 1960s onward. Uh, but always in Washington, D.C., on the assumption that that was the center of the world after uh, the Second World War in any event, and that people interested in and responsible for all parts of the world had representatives in Washington. And so their annual meetings were for a while in the same Hilton Hotel and uh, with the same cast of characters uh, talking about the future, and anybody could join. So it had a distinctly American. But they were big, weren't they? I mean, they weren't small gatherings. There were there were many, many thousands of members and people coming to the conferences. Yes, anyone could be a member. Uh, and but that every, let me uh, contrast it with the federation, and I think you can see the difference I'm trying to make here, because the world the World Future Studies Federation was really created by people who question the intellectual as well as economic and political hegemony of the United States. They weren't opposed to it. They all, many of them were members of the World Future Society, but they also realized that the World Future Society uh, was not, while it would let anybody become a member, it didn't affirmatively reach out and bring to, to their meetings and to their journals, uh, people who represented profoundly different ideas about the future. Yep. And so the members of the World Future Studies Federation, in essence, said this, if Western society is so great, and if Western society is to be the um, model for the future of the entire world from now on, is it really such a great civilization, which just in this century alone, namely the 20th century, had two major world wars starting in Europe but spreading worldwide, that um, in which 
and in between them, a horrible economic depression that wiped out uh, the fortunes and futures of many people worldwide. Uh, and in the Second World War, the representatives of the, the most advanced nation in the world, namely Germany, intellectually and economically at that time, wanted to exterminate an entire group of people. And then after, and then someone else, another group of uh, people in that war, invent a bomb that exterminates entire cities and everything that's in there. And then at the end of that, the former allies become enemies and create a wall between so-called communists and capitalist parts of the world. Is this really the best humanity can do? Are there out there in the world other images of the future other ways of living that we in the West might learn from. And so the, the World Future Studies Federation became exactly what the name implies, a federation of people and groups doing futures research of some sort around the world. And um, we uh, found, the federation found ways, primarily through UNESCO, to get funding to bring people to our meetings from all parts of the world and to hold our meetings in all parts of the world so that we could learn about what the future looks like in Egypt, in Japan, in Pakistan, and places like that, and where those places can get to understand what future studies is. And finally, the last thing I'll point out, it's the world future with a singular future society and the World Futures Studies Federation with an S from the very beginning. Um, there was a period during the early days of the Futures Federation when uh, members of the Soviet Union said that uh, there was only one future and we would have to uh, erase the S in our name or else uh, other communist members could not uh, participate. And so we dutifully erased the S until the collapse of communism put the S back on. And that is sort of a segue to the next question about uh, theories and methods. Second question is the one where I encourage my guests to talk technically about um, a favoured or, or, or a useful model or framework. And so what would you like to talk to the listeners about, Jim? Well, like almost every other person who gets in the futures field, and certainly at the time when I was entering it, I assumed that there was something called the future, uh, which lay ahead, and uh, that it would be possible through careful data analysis and um, uh, collection and uh, analysis through computers, which were just beginning to evolve at that time, and people were experimenting with computer modeling, that it would be possible to predict the future. In fact, I had done writing in as a political scientist using new techniques in political science at the time uh, to predict elections, to predict uh, roll call votes in legislators, legislatures, and in my case, especially to predict decisions by the United States Supreme Court. Um, and so I more or less assumed that it was just a question of getting the right 
theory and getting the right data and uh, getting the right computer program, and we'd be able to predict the future. And the future that was the image of the future that I had at that time was very conventional for the period. It was very high tech. In fact, very space oriented, very space driven. I was a, a big space enthusiast from early on and associated with uh, other members of the space community at Virginia Tech um, and the University of Hawaii, subsequently. But uh, it was all high tech space uh, images of the future. But in the process of writing the bibliography that I just uh, wrote, that I mentioned earlier, and I love writing bibliographies. It's one of my <laughs> favorite things academically is to get more and more and more and more uh, information, ideas that other people have about whatever the topic is. I began to discover, wow, there are a lot of people out here that don't share my view of the future. There are people that are concerned about population growth. There are people that are concerned about pesticides and the destruction of the uh, and pollution of the environment. There are people that are concerned, wow, about climate change. This is even in the 70s. And um, I, how do they fit into my high-tech future? And then there are some people that went beyond these challenges and said that we were in the process of collapsing uh, the chasm ahead and other books that were descri uh, describing the imminent uh, collapse, uh, economic and social environmental collapse of the developed world as a consequence of things that I hadn't even thought about at the time. And then there were other people, uh, this was the right in the middle of the civil rights movement, especially concerning integration of what were then called Negroes, African-Americans into uh, white society, the integration of the two. And then people said, no, we don't want to integrate. We want to develop our, our own culture, our own ideas that can somehow collaborate, but based upon something quite different than what white society brought in. And then at the same time, there were women saying, well, you're talking about a patriarchal world in which those rockets are indeed the ultimate uh, example of male <laughs> penis envy. And so what are you talking about? Uh, we need to have uh, an understanding of a woman's role in the history, uh, which is generally at that point completely absent, as well as the operations of patriarchy. And uh, so-called American Indians were making a similar argument. And certainly in Hawaii, there was uh, recognition that the way in which the United States had absorbed these islands was completely illegal by international law. And that uh, if Hawaii had been allowed to develop without American and other big uh, nation imperialism, it'd be quite different. So I said, wait a minute. There are a whole big bunch of other ideas about the future out there. And my initial notion was, which is correct? <laughs> How is it possible for me to decide which is the correct future that I should teach about? Well, as I read through that literature, each author made very convincing <laughs> arguments on their perspective. And so at a certain point, in my career. Uh, actually, it was during two years that I spent in Toronto, Canada, 
uh, working with TV Ontario, developing a series of television shows about the future at a time when Canada, as a nation, through its science council, was trying to turn Canada from being a consumer society to being a conserver society because of the impact that uh, the limits to growth and small is beautiful and other ideas about uh, collapse or discipline were taken very seriously. And so the Science Council was going to try to completely reorient Canada away from consumerism towards uh, the ideas of a conservative society. And I was asked by TV Ontario to help produce television content that helped the Science Council turn Canada around. Well, we didn't (laughs) succeed in that, but it certainly led me to try to figure out, okay, there are lots of images of the future out there. I can't really say which is right and which is wrong because they are each based upon not different facts, but different interpretations of the facts. They are based upon different theories of social stability and social change. And so literally one day uh, for a period of about a month in my bedroom, I collected all images of the future that I could find in print at that time and put them into piles. And at the end of it, I had four piles of images of the future. And as I looked at what those four were, I eventually named them what they are now, growth, continued economic growth, renewed economic growth. And that's, that was the biggest pile. Almost all images of the future uh, were examples of some sort of continued or renewed economic growth. And I would call that the official image of the future. It's yeah. what economic development that I referred to earlier is all about, the notion that you had to grow forever. The reason there was nothing in that literature about the future of the West was that you were to grow forever. There was no end to that. Mm -hmm. And so continued economic growth meant continued economic growth forever. But then there was a smaller pile, but at that time relatively large, of of people arguing for economic and environmental and social and spiritual collapse, Mm -hmm. that you can't grow forever. That's the logic of a cancer cell that eventually eats its host. Mm -hmm. You have to stop or else we will collapse. And so the third image of the future, which at that time was called conserver from the conservative society, idea and eventually became, in my uh, labeling, discipline in the sense of self-discipline, disciplining yourself around different values, and in this case, values other than continued economic growth uh, came forward. And it's often called, was called sustainability, that instead of growing forever and in order to avoid collapse, you had to have a steady state of some sort. But then the old futurists like Buckminster Fuller and uh, Marshall McLuhan and myself for that matter, and many others said, no, 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 we are in the process of a transformation uh, of society, primarily technologically induced transformation. 
And so people at that time, like the ones I mentioned, uh, or Taylor Deschardins, a, who envisioned the development of a global mind, a new sphere, and others were talking about a spiritual transformation. So there were two types of transformational images. One technologically induced, which I think the singularity of Ray Kurzweil now is an example, even though I don't think he frames it as a transformational image. Nonetheless, the fact that all the technologies are moving together and changing not only humanity into post-humanity of some sort, but the environment into a, a totally artificial environment. And spiritual. Barbara Marks Hubbard, who just recently died, yeah, was so, a very yeah, good example yeah. of this transformational view. And so those four images of the future elaborated differently at different times for different organizations, but on that same theoretical base, each one making fundamentally different assumptions about the way the world works and deriving their images of the future from trends and emerging issues that support each one of those four uh, in very, very different uh, ways became the uh, basis of my teaching. All of my courses were based not upon the future, but of what I came to call four generic images of the futures. And I emphasize that future studies does not study the future because the future doesn't exist and you can't study things that don't exist, but images of the future do exist and exist in the world at the present time. And their origin can be studied, their spread can be studied, their consequences can be studied. And this is what future studies works on these, these four alternative images. Now, every year in my classes and as part of my own research, I ask my students and myself to look for other images of the future that don't fit into the four. And so far, I believe it stood the test of time. While uh, other images have emerged, and in fact, one of the things that I have learned is that images of the future are extremely volatile. People's ideas about the future change literally overnight when some event, such as 911, totally changed America's view of itself and of the rest of the world from a proud, give me liberty or give me death sort of a nation to one which is extremely frightened of itself, of its own shadow that uh, Trump has certainly further uh, contributed to and built upon. So that we actually, if you look at uh, images of the future historically, you see that they are highly volatile. And what is um, ignored at one time is really important at another. Uh, We're not worried about energy anymore, but uh, 10 years ago, that's all we were worried about. Uh, For years, I've tried to get people worried about uh, climate change and sea level rise. No one was interested. Now people are going crazy over it, uh, 30 years too late, in my opinion. So I saw that the images are volatile, but the four futures, in my opinion, have pretty much stood the test of time. The last thing I want to say is that there are many theories of social change, of social stability and change, based upon biology, based upon culture, based upon language, 
uh, based upon what great men do, uh, things like that. I have been rather conventional in uh, believing that at least in the world we live in now, the major cause of social and environmental change is technology. And the way that works very briefly is our ideas about ourselves are based upon our behavior. And our behavior is influenced by the things that I mentioned, by our biology, by our geography, by our culture, but also by our technology. And that we live in a world where technological change is extremely rapid, is a major focus of economic growth, is to produce technologies that change our behavior. And so uh, we are constantly now having old ways destroyed as new waves never really have a chance to mature as we perpetually change. And so this theory of we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us, in the phrase of Marshall McLuhan, yeah. uh, I, is basically underlies my understanding of all of the four futures. But each one of the four have their own assumptions about what's important. Uh, it's the environment, not economics. It's economics for the growth scenario. It's culture for uh, the collapse, uh, the discipline scenario, and so forth. Yeah. So this in brief, but perhaps still a little too long, is where the four futures of the Manoa School, uh, how they are, um, emerged and how I've used them and have taught generations of students now to use them in their own research and teaching. And I'll end by saying the word Manoa refers to the valley in which the University of Hawaii is located, the Manoa Valley. And several, quite a number of years ago, my students noted that their ideas about the future differed from those of other futurists. When they would attend meetings of the World Future Studies Federation, they discovered they were sort of a, a cohort, an intellectual cohort, that had a unique way of looking at the future, whereas other groups, uh, had different images of the future. And so they named themselves the Manoa School of Future Studies in imitation of the Frankfurt School or the <laughs> Vienna School. Rather elevated notion, but nonetheless, I think it's probably valid. And now, as the students have moved around the world and as people have tried out the four futures, I find it is being accepted and used usefully uh, more and more around the world. Question, the next question, Jim, is around, and I asked this one, this is often a hard one for our guests to answer because it kind of puts you in the point where I'm asking you, how do you see the futures emerging for us, for yourself? You can, you can locate it in there, you can locate it in Hawaii, you can speak about the world, whatever you want to choose as a, as a level of inquiry. Okay, well, first of all, I remain steadfastly committed to the uh, Four Futures um, yep. uh, notion for reasons yep. I just explained. Uh, but it is it also, as I said, at various times, various elements of the futures become important and others become less important. And uh, one of the things that 
happened uh, was that uh, for a long period of time, climate change issues were only a part of collapse and discipline. Uh, but about 10 years ago, I realized that, that it was no longer uh, simply a, a view that some people had, that the, the evidence was sufficiently convincing to me that it had to become part of all futures uh, in varying ways. It could, in continued growth, it could still be denied um, as being important or viewed as a hoax or increasingly, as I think slowly we're seeing some examples, it's being viewed as a new economic opportunity. Oh good, all shoreline development will be destroyed, we'll have to build all these buildings for people uh, farther inland, and so forth. Uh, I'm surprised that that wasn't picked up sooner, because I've certainly had a, a component of my discussions for a long time. So, but anyway, that now, I agree with the world <laughs> that with those who say that it's a major turning point in the futures. It's, uh, the magnitude is unclear. We can still argue about that. But the fact of substantial uh, environmental change, of climate change, changes not just in sea level rise but, uh, and in the heat, but in cold and in general chaotic climate. Uh, this comes not only observing what has happened as a result of human-made climate change, but of the fact that the last 200 years uh, in the whole scope of uh, global change from the creation of the planet to the present time has gone through all sorts of periods. In the last 200 years have been exceptionally stable climate. And so a lot of our economic growth and certainly a lot of our agricultural productivity was based over the last 200 years was based on an unusually stable period of climate where farmers could pretty much predict what the weather was going to be like. Of course, one of the things about being a farmer is you're constantly living on a sword's uh, edge of too much rain, not enough rain and all the rest. But compared to the past, and that seems to me, compared to the future, we're coming out of a period of stability into considerable uh, instability. And so this is not, this is just using climate change as an example. Clearly America's um, brief period as the global hegemon has already ended and uh, we are determined to uh, end it even faster by supporting <laughs> the policies that we are uh, currently engaged in, uh, but I don't see this as a return to great power rivalry in which the United States and China are fighting each other. Uh, that might happen, but I think that uh, that's not going to be the major characteristic. I go very much with what Zia Sadar and other people working with him are saying about post-normal. I think in everything, with the factors that are changing, the causes of change, and the rapidity of change are unending. So there, we can no longer talk about a normal future, a most likely future, uh, that this is a wild card, and that we have underneath it uh, the most likely future that we can base our ideas on. That's over. And I believe for the foreseeable future, for as far as I can see into the future, 
uh, chaotic, uncertain, post-normal futures are likely. Now, this does two things. Well, it does many things, but it does two things in terms of the time span that futurists typically look at. So throughout most of my career, I have said 25 or 30 years. That's the, the interval of time that most futures are interested in. 40 years, maybe, in which you say 20 years from the past, 20 years into the future, a moving 40-year period, rolling ever forward, in which these things in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years are really still parts of the present for most people, and the things over the next 5, 10, uh, or 30, or 40 years uh, are the things in the future. And I, I think that's still a, a good way to look at it because it's related to lifespan and education and things like that. But I don't think that we, can, we will have a period of normality, of stability, uh, which we can look forward to uh, in the foreseeable future, uh, primarily because of population growth continuing in some parts of the world and declining in others so that we have far, far too many people on this earth now and in the process of emerging and being born. And we still have pro-natalist policies so that whenever the population of any nation begins to decline, uh, all effort is made to have population grow, which is absolute insanity, but we continue to do it. And so we vastly, just in terms of number, overpopulate. Um, we exceed the carrying capacity of Earth, no matter how technologically augmented that might be. And then part of that, uh, the environmental issues uh, brought by climate change and all the rest, and the difficulty, therefore, of getting resources. I also take artificial intelligence very, very seriously. I am a member, I, I'm an advocate of what might be called strong AI, in which I think we already rely upon artificial intelligence to make just thousands, millions of decisions for us now without questioning. And this will simply become more and more uh, common. This is something to be welcomed, but it also means that certainly undercuts all of our economic assumptions about the necessity of work and the ability to reward people on the basis of the work they do. Those days are over and we need to turn to something else. So these things and the geopolitical implications of it suggest to me a continuously different world, uh, a world that is different from that anybody listening to me has experienced over their own lifetime into something that is impossible for me to characterize other than as continuously chaotic. And the metaphor surfing tsunamis is still applicable, even more <laughs> applicable. That captures the degrees of freedom that we humans have towards these processes. They are coming towards us. We cannot uh, avoid them, even though we continue often to deny them. The only thing to learn to do is how to surf them, to prepare ourselves to enjoy their power and force for a, the brief ride that we will be able to experience on them. And so I end up, uh, therefore, being very optimistic about the future if, and, I, and encouraging young people to not talk about 
dystopias, bad futures, uh, hard times, but rather new opportunities. The term that I use, that I couple with collapse, the collapse image of the future is new beginnings, that we have this wonderful opportunity to rethink, indeed obligation, to rethink our purpose of life and the way in which we organize and meet each other. So that is, I hope, uh, an explanation of what I see as unfolding uh, over the foreseeable futures. That's fantastic, Jim. Thanks. Next question, Jim, is the often difficult one for people who start out in the field. How do you explain what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Well, I use some of the terms that I just described. I say that futurists do not predict the future. That's not possible anymore. That what we try to do is to forecast, which is not the same as prediction, alternative futures and to develop uh, policies to respond to them. And I will often use the concept of surfing tsunamis to indicate the magnitude of the forces of change that are facing us, but to show that these can be viewed as exciting challenges and opportunities and not as things either to deny or avoid or view as catastrophes. Yeah. It was interesting because I I asked that question of Sahail just a couple of weeks ago. I don't have those conversations anymore. Well, I... I do. He doesn't have many conversations anymore. (laughs) He's at a a stage in his life that is uh, not one that I am in. I will respond to anybody on anything. I basically, I would say I've spent my whole life answering that question and no one has listened. So that if you were to view me in my life by, was I successful in getting people to take a different path? I would say no. Oh, and was I successful in getting people to be prepared to take a different path? I would say no. But I will say that I am constantly deluged by people who say, I wish we had listened to you. I wish we had taken it more seriously. I want to say something about climate change because it relates directly to Australia, as you may or may not know. You probably do know. But once upon a time in Australia, there was something called this Commission on the Future, Commission for the Future. And Barry O. Jones, who was a, a very controversial but extremely bright, foresighted person, was, a, a, I think, the creator and certainly yep, one of the was. active members of that. Yep. And uh, he wrote a book called Sleeper's Wake, which anticipated the artificial intelligence and the end of work well before it was uh, commonly discussed. And he also, and this is what I want to point out, sponsored, uh, the commission sponsored a nationwide uh, electronic discussion of climate change uh, in the uh, 1980s. And I remember that people from Perth and everywhere were engaged in a serious discussion in the 1980s of climate change. And one of the main things that people thought was that this, that climate change, once people hear about it, will do for humanity what the imminent report of an alien invasion from outer space will do. 
okay. it'll make humanity join together yeah. uh, to solve this global problem, which cannot be solved by any nation. Uh, well, that didn't happen. But one of the things that I have uh, is the memory of the poster that the commission had. You may have it in your office somewhere, but it's a, a poster that shows the sails of the uh, Sydney Opera House underwater or being engulfed by water. Yeah. And it says, in effect, if we act as if it matters and it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. But if we act as if it doesn't matter and it matters, then it matters. <laughs> that has always been, I think, one of the most important ways to think about the future. We ought to consider all of these alternatives as if they matter. And if they don't matter, that's okay. But if they do matter, then we're prepared for them. And basically, I have been a failure in that <laughs> respect, in getting people significantly to change their behaviors by changing their institutions uh, for the advantages and opportunities and challenges of the futures. I think you're being harsh on yourself, Jim. I think um, it might be that it's around creating people who can change the institutions. And it is always a case of changing one person at a time. You've you certainly changed many in the classroom. That's true. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, as many advocates of the collapse scenario say, uh, human beings are perhaps a evolutionary project that's not working out. Yeah. That next time around, God or the evolutionary processes will say, let's skip humanity <laughs> and um, try to uh, devise a world that works a little better. Uh, because I think it is fundamentally impossible. Part of the problem is if we have to convert people one by one, we're being outnumbered because of the exponential, continuing exponential growth of new people who, for whom all of this is new. And one of the things that I note over and over and over and over again is most futurists, most new futurists are continuously reinventing the wheel. Very few of them get on the, the wagon as it is going and try to improve it or have it move in dis, uh, different directions. So we're always back at the beginning. That's not true of most other disciplines, which have successfully been able to develop cohorts that stand on the shoulders of the one before so that they're seen farther and deeper and more effectively, but only directly ahead. In their future, they haven't embraced the, they aren't able to widen their view to see what's happening elsewhere. And so they're often just leading us to catastrophe at ever increasing speeds. Thanks, Jim. So the last question, Jim, which is an open question, but generally pick up something that the person raised. And I'm going to ask you around a small line you said about how you phrase this this collapse and new beginnings. If Jim Data was that kid coming out of Stetson University now, and you could, if not advise him what to do, but what would you be saying are the attributes or the things that a person would pursue in order to have a gainful life in those conditions? 
First of all, there's not much on the basis of what uh, a person coming out of Stetson or any other university knows that will be useful for the task that lies ahead. But a month or two ago, I was uh, talking with a, a group of people in what's called uh, WICHI, the Western Interstate Commission on Education, uh, which involves representatives of all of the state universities in the Western United States from Colorado westward to, in fact, Guam and the Northern Marianas in the far um, western end of the Pacific. These were the people uh, responsible for the community colleges, the junior colleges, that are often focused on vocational education more than the four-year colleges or graduate schools that are interested in more intellectual and less practically applied things, perhaps. And their topic was artificial intelligence and the futures of work. What I did was add climate change to that. So these two seemingly different, but actually interrelated forces, uh, artificial intelligence and the end of work, the idea of full unemployment in the future, and climate change and all the changes it's bringing on, uh, need to be looked at not as catastrophes or ignored as overwhelmingly, but as providing opportunities for change. And that the educational system itself which is currently oriented, yeah. graduating people, not even that know how to work. They're graduating primarily to learn how to consume uh, because so much of the work is being done without labor anyway. And so we have this people that are constantly being trained to produce new gadgets that will make them rich and change the lives of the people that use them. That instead of that, they ought to look seriously at the what is needed in terms of building artificial environments. I don't think there's any chance at all to go back and restore. Uh, that's why that, that's, that time has passed. We simply have to learn to surf the tsunamis, not prevent them from occurring. If we had that option, I think we did 30 or 40 years ago, we didn't take it and now that's way too late. So I think the whole educational enterprise itself needs to move away from producing people for a um, dysfunctional economic system and more towards learning how to be inventors, learning how to be social inventors, learning how to develop new institutions. Because um, the way I understand the world works, you can have all the goodwill in the world, but if you're living in an environment where the institutions push against, make difficult, if not impossible, the to act out on your preferred values you have to change the institutions and not just what people want to do you have to uh, create new institutions that allow them to behave in order to achieve the values they want so i would say uh, you've got to start with the schools and the sooner the better and that is to say the earlier in the academic process the better while children are still creative as they are that's where Peter Bishop has gone with Teach the Future. Absolutely. Absolutely. I support him wholeheartedly on that. I'm, I'm very glad it's happening. Again, uh, I can't say it's too late because now is the only time we have. And I'm glad to have him do it. In fact, he spent his whole life doing that. Uh, I think he's just doing it more urgently and focused and without the problems of being an academic administrator. All right, Jim, I'm going to wrap it here. I'll just say, look, 
on behalf of the Future Pod community, thanks very much for taking time out to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, participating and look forward to what you make of this nonsense. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.